Hello, hello. My name is Dr. Rachel Gainsborough, and I am obsessed with all things short-term rentals, revenue streams, and helping you navigate your career, real estate, and your busiest and most wonderful seasons of life. I'm an immigrant, a pharmacist, a wife, and a mom who took one guest room rental and turned it into a multi property, seven figure real estate business, which has also landed us on TV. I'll teach you the real secrets and everything you need to build a short term rental business that you love. I discuss the hard topics, mistakes I've made and the mistakes others have made. So you don't have to make them for yourself. Financing, automations, acquisitions, low occupancy, scaling and building your team all while balancing your life are all subjects to be discussed here. Consider me that one best friend you can come to with your short-term rental business questions. So grab your coffee, get comfortable as you get ready to learn and grow with me. This is the Luxury Short-Term Rental Doctor Podcast. Hello, hello, everyone. Okay, so I'm super, super pumped to have Miss Leslie Ann Morris with me. And there's so much simpatico between the two of us. I know we connected both virtually and in person, right? Not too long ago. Yeah. And so, yeah, so if you see the subject of the email, it is how Leslie built a $7 million real estate portfolio in just three years. And she is up to some amazing things her portfolio has grown even further. And let me tell you, so what I love about Leslie is that she is on a mission to help make a thousand millionaires. Is that still the case, my friend? The number's still a thousand. We're going to hit it and go up. But... I love it. I love it. And she's focused primarily on women. And that is my passion as well. And she has done this or she's working on this through the real estate short-term rental vehicle, which is also my passion. And so how did she end up here? We are interviewing her and we want to get a glimpse into the path that she has taken. It's quite a non-traditional path. And to understand really what she is up to, because I got to tell you, child, this lady, even during the pandemic, was able to start something new and, and really up-level it and bring it to the next level. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited. <laughs> I am so pumped too. And I know you, you've been a globetrotter. I see you on social. You're just on this amazing trip in London not too long ago, right? Yeah. I went to London for about a week to promote the book, yeah. the second book. And you were in the first book. We have so much <laughs> Hospitable yeah. hosts. Yeah. So author, Leslie's an author as well. And what I appreciate about that book is it's giving the community a glimpse into, well, what is this short-term rental investing or hosting really about? It's not just the, you know, the rhetoric we see on the news and, you know, the negative impact that we're oftentimes, that are oftentimes being highlighted, Right. So we've had the great pleasure of hosting so many individuals in such a heartwarming way. So I'm super pumped about that. And I know you're also a newly minted Forbes. Why, why am I, I'm losing my train of thought, but you're accepted to the Forbes Business Council, newly minted. So that is super impressive, Leslie. And yeah, just looking forward to tap into all of these things. So let's, I'm giving partial introductions and all that, Leslie. 
tell us a little bit about yourself. Let the people know. I don't like you could keep talking and I'll just keep making funny faces. I'm not yeah. sure if anybody's seen you. <laughs> that yeah. right. I mean, there's just a lot going on with me right now. I, I everybody's we're seeing you everywhere and every time it's something new. It's like I've I found my passion and I caught this tailwind and I'm just headed to the stars, literally. Oh, I love it. I love it. Do you it. want me to give background? What where would you like yeah. me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so tell us a little bit about you, like where you started. You can tell us your origin story, a little girl, what your thoughts were, what your future plans were, how you got. And then let's, you know, fast forward it to how you got started into real estate investing. Yeah. My dad and mom, they always tell me as a little girl, I would point out like building. I'm from Northern California. So we would go to San Francisco as the city six hours south. Um, I'm from Northern California, very north. But I would point out buildings like skyscrapers and tell my parents as a four-year-old girl that I was going to own these buildings one day. I don't recall that, but apparently that was my, my thing, I said. But I was an intentional banker. I actually went to college and got a finance degree and became a banker. So I did that for about 23 years. I actually quit in September 2022, so very recently. But I had a very high-profile banking career flying to the corporate ladder like a champ, won all the sales awards. I actually was the banker for SpaceX for some time when I lived in Los Angeles. And I did tons of different deals. I did small business, commercial, corporate, you name it. I've done very large like private equity, venture capital deals for banks on the on bank lending side. So I know underwriting like the back of my hand. And I think it kind of started in my early 20s, my love for real estate. Like I wanted to head that way one day. I had I can remember a handful of clients, but one particular client who I would just 20 question this poor guy, like every time I'd meet with him, I'm like, so tell me, what did you buy now? And how is your tax return, you know, so big? Like, how do you own all these properties? And he kind of just gave me the strategy. And in the back of my mind, I always knew that one day that would be me. And the day came when I was in Los Angeles. This was 2019, so fairly recent. Prior to that, I'd bought homes and remodeled them while I lived in them and then flipped to them essentially. So I was not a stranger to buying and selling real estate. I'd done a lot of deals, but they were just, you know, there was no tenants or cash flow or anything. It was like a one time, it was a flip essentially. But I was in LA and I got this 10K report that US Bank put out that year. And I saw the CEO's salary was like 16 million. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around how I was going to get to that level of income in banking. I was a senior vice president. I made pretty damn good money enough to, you know, live a comfortable life, but I just couldn't see it. So two things happened right away. I decided to rob a retirement account and begin investing in real estate, rent real estate. And I decided to start a master's degree. So I did do a master's degree largely during the pandemic at the University of Southern California. And it taught me how to build these businesses and really get strategic on my passion, which is cabins. So back to the other side of the story. So in 2019, I bought my first cabin in the Smoky Mountains. I largely just taught myself how to do it and what's a short-term rental and how do I list it on Airbnb? And it scaled really fast. I was able to get two cabins with the retirement money right away, like a month apart. <clears throat> I closed on two. And then by that time, like three or four months had gone by, I decided to leave 
California because I saw this golden opportunity. There was a lot of things motivating the decision to leave California, but the main one was if I could reduce my cost of living and get closer to my cabins, I could not only learn the business better, but I could buy them faster if I could keep my high salary. So that's what I did. U.S. Bank moved me to Charlotte largely during the pandemic. As we know, the pandemic like ended a lot of things. It started to end my job with the bank because I was building a new market there. I got headhunted by a bank, First Tennessee, First Horizon is the parent. So they moved me to Tennessee and I got right at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. And I spent the last two years of my banking career with them and all the while building this sizable real estate portfolio. And today I own 12. One of them is under construction. I'm building a cabin. The other 11 are cabins. And then after that, I was like, I think I'm going to quit my job. I need my time. I created two companies largely out of my own portfolio. They're Invest in the Smoky Mountains, an agent team. We're not just typical real estate agents. We actually teach buyers what to buy and how to underwrite it to make sure they're going to cash flow in this rate environment with these prices being a lot higher now. And then the other company I created was Josh's Cabins, and that's a full service property management company. And I was basically forced to create that to get my time back because I was self-managing the cabins. And I just, quality of life was like, you know, I was making great money, but I was very, very busy with it. So largely I hired family, mostly women. Josh is the only man. <laughs> and it's been going beautifully. And now here we are. Lots of things are happening just as a result of the tailwind that I got. Wow, that's that's amazing. And that's really remarkable because I know a lot of those who are listening to us right now are working a full-time W-2 and a demanding one, nevertheless. And mm -hmm. so for you to um, have the mindset enough to say, you know what, I'm going to take a, a side project in the middle of, you know, all the things that I'm responsible for for. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what was that mindset like in terms of you finding that capacity to take on such a big project, really? Yeah, I have a really strong mindset. I'm really determined and driven. I've been like that since I was a little girl. My mom always was like, you want to come straight home and you just get right to your homework. I wouldn't even have to tell you. Now, cleaning my room was another thing. But yeah, I mean, I think that I put my hand up. Most importantly, I put my hand up and I asked the right people the right question. I did a lot of self-education. I just would Google things like, how to buy a property cash? Okay, that's not a good idea. I'm a banker. I want to use other people's money. Where's the price per square foot low? You know, and I taught myself what would, what would work well. And then I found other people doing it and networked with them. And I just kind of jumped with no fear. I thought in my mind, I said, here's my strategy on the first deal. I was like, I have this true love affair with cabins. I traveled to 45 countries. I've been all over the world. I've mostly stayed in cabins. I'm from the mountains of California. So I thought, well, okay, worst case scenario, I can afford the mortgage out of my paycheck. So if it doesn't rent at all, I have this awesome vacation home and I will just go stay at it myself or have family there, but I hope that it's going to break even. That was largely my, my mindset on it. And it just did amazing. The first one did awesome. It started to throw off a lot of cash. And so I just bought more and more and more and more. 
So this is fascinating to me because, you know, you're from California, you, you know, you're investing in the Smokies, you determine that cabins are your jam, you love cabins. And I absolutely love that because I think uh, a lot of the members in our community, they get stuck, right? Especially our Californians, because a lot of you do tend to invest outside of the state, you know, in your own backyard. It's it's definitely challenging. So mm-hmm. what would you tell that person who's in California right now? They don't quite, you know, they don't want to invest in California, perhaps, but they don't quite know where to get started and where to look. What would you tell them? Yeah, I tried to do it in California. I looked at Palm Springs because I thought, oh, I could go, I could get one with a pool. I'd have a pool out there. I could drive out there. But it was so expensive and heavily regulated. And the city of Palm Springs was actually one of my clients because I covered the municipal book for U.S. Bank for a while. And so I would like network with them on. And they're like, no, it's going to get worse. We're going to crack down more. Like, we just mm. don't. So you had the scoop of what not to do. <laughs> yeah, they were like, we need to keep housing for locals and stuff. Whatever. Yeah. So I looked, you know, inland. I I looked all over. I tried California desperately because I did want to be close. You hear horror stories. You know, if you're asking, if you're looking for the negative, you're going to find it. So that's my first tip. Like, don't look for the negative. Look for, like, what could go right. But, yeah, I just picked a market that resonated with me. You know, I know some buyers, they'll call me and they'll talk about Smoky Mountains. And then they'll decide, you know, the beach is more their jam because they're more passionate about it. And that's fine. Um, But I particularly chose the Smokies because of the high occupancy that we enjoy. We really don't need to worry about things sitting empty very often. We do have some low, some low times. And and now with the pandemic and travel starting to change again, we're kind of guessing at where we're going to land. But for the most part, we're having an awesome year, March. We were at almost 100% occupancy. But I say all of that to say, like, you know, every market is going to have its challenges. and, And you can find problems with every deal. So what you really need to do is look inside yourself and ask yourself, why are you even researching any of this in the first place? What is your goal? What are your values and what are your feelings and thoughts around it? And try to break down, like, why are you trying to leave your W-2 or create a passive income stream? Is it to spend more time with your kids? You know, take a chance on the deal, like go in. Work with an agent that's also an investor that knows underwriting metrics that can help you with the strategy. They'll likely have a team already built out because they're doing it themselves. And just get all of like, you know, go go through your fear, like play it out till the end. Like, are you really going to buy something and then lose every dollar you own? Probably not. Like maybe the strategy doesn't work and you have to pivot. I have a quick story about that, actually. I, during the pandemic, when the um, prices in the Smokies started to shoot up, I was like, I don't want to pay that for that. Like, I just got that for a hundred grand less. So I moved into Florida and I bought a place that was like walking distance to the beach and I got a great deal on it. I had to furnish it. I had to buy TVs for dishes, everything. It was empty, but it was like a two-story townhouse, real pretty. And the people destroyed it. It was like the quality of guests that would stay there was just not the quality of guests that was in the Smokies. And so it was largely a failure for me. However, it still made money. It was just annoying. It was a headache. And then I decided... After I had held it for about 11 months, it wasn't even a year, I decided to list it. And I listed it and sold it. I made like $125,000 in appreciation during those 11 months. And then I bought another cabin because I was like, forget it. Like, I'm I'm all in on cabins. So, you know, 
you learn and you pivot. That's that's the story there. I mean, I love it. I feel as though it's like a story of my life as well. As soon as you stray from the formula, you pay the price. <laughs> yeah. But but thankfully, wow. Congratulations on that. You're able to, you know, reinvest and 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 get back in your lane, right? Which is your cabins, which you absolutely love. So I love everything you just mentioned about, you know, figuring out what your why is, because it really depends on what the reason, you know, for your investing is going to be. Are you looking to cut back on your W-2? Are you looking to generate some more of that time freedom, a little bit more elbow room? And so your experience with SpaceX has not escaped me. I'm like, Seriously, how amazing is that? I know my husband would definitely want to talk to you more about that. He loves everything, you know, outer space. So let let me ask you this. How have you felt that your commercial your commercial banking experience has helped you specifically in, you know, investing in real estate, in, investing in your strategy? Because I know that my pharmacy experience, my healthcare experience background has helped me with a lot of the analytical <laughs> things that are behind the scenes. But I'm wondering, what about you? How's, how's that helped you? Yeah, no, it definitely has. I mean, I was doing a lot of public speaking things for U.S. Bank. I was on like all the boards they had. I was a top performer and I, I'm, a, I'm a woman that speaks up. I'm not shy. They're like, we need somebody to go to this conference and speak to these people. And I'm like, oh, so that helped me building, you know, because I speak in the short-term rental industry now and go to events and I'm doing some TV stuff. It's very exciting. But back to the actual in my job, two big things. I spent a large portion of the career doing um, credit underwriting and lending. So I know pretty much every which way to underwrite any sort of deal. These cabins are very easy to underwrite. There's just a couple of metrics that we use. I can teach it to a child on an app and they can go underwrite a cabin for you. So if you have children, please give them my number. <laughs> but in all seriousness, the second thing from banking I did was I had this really fancy title and I won't even tell it because it doesn't make any sense. But I was like an outside consultant. And this is the capacity in which I met SpaceX was I would go in and do like a whiteboarding session and map out their entire receivables and payables processes. So I know an awful lot about payment optimization, collections, like how to slow down vendor payments, how to speed up you know, receivables and a lot of that mindset and questioning and understanding, like you said, analytics really lends itself into the, all the businesses I have wrapped up into my portfolio. So it gives me that really good thinking cap and that basis to understand income sheets and balance statements. Like if you've ever talked to an accountant, it's so boring, but like, I know it very, very well. I know how the numbers flow. So you know, if you get into investing in real estate, you want to understand how numbers flow. Like, of course, you'll have an accountant, CPA, all that good stuff. But you want to be able to do due diligence on your own to understand the reports, especially if you think they might be wrong and, and understand which deals are profitable and which ones are. So that that's definitely a big, a big portion of that. I love that. So I think that segues really well into my next question which is what do you think, I guess, puts Smoky Mountain on the map for you as opposed to all of the other you know, markets with cabins? I know that your portfolio is primarily in the Smokies, 
So what what really sets that market apart for for you? Because I know there's some back and forth, you know, in terms of what many are able to afford versus what they're able to generate in terms of revenue. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the original reason why I invested in that market is because the price per square foot was really a lot lower than California. <laughs> and I love cabins. I'm obsessed with cabins. I've been all over the world, stayed in a lot of cabins. But before you get to the Smokies, though, there's there's cabins in Colorado. There's cabins in <laughs> you. You right, just right. get the best cabins, right? So yeah. So why why the Smoky Mountains? Did you, was was that the case then? Like the price per square foot compared to many of the other you know locations in the U.S. were it was much better. And then you did mention the occupancy rate. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's the number one vacation market in the whole entire United States. It it enjoys like I think the statistic says that like sixty to seventy percent of the United States population is within an eight hour drive or less. So if we have a pandemic, for example, or people don't want to fly, they can carpool in, they can drive in, they can bring in ice chests with food. And we had a lot of people shelter in place. We hosted like a lot of like um frontline like nurses and police that needed like a true vacation so that was really rewarding but for me I don't know I mean it was like a feeling it was it was it made good business sense from like occupancy and you know drivability and I was like a big time whiskey aficionado when I started so that was like the allure of Tennessee whiskey Dolly Parton is from Severe Bowl she has Dolly it's <laughs> an amazing one. She's got a new album coming out. I just saw today. Oh my! Um, so there was just like all these different metrics, and then I think the biggest thing that tipped me over the edge was I went on Zillow, and I just was like, I'm just gonna look and see what's on the market. And I found the first cabin that I bought myself on Zillow. I was like, that's only three hundred and nine thousand dollars. I want it. I don't care if it makes money. You know, it was in a very emotional beginning to my journey. I'm not really like that today. I'm very, you know, it's a different time. But that was probably the biggest thing. And the stars just kind of aligned. I was working with an all-women team and took down, took down a few deals. And then and that in just a short period of time, got my own real estate license and started doing my own deals. But yeah, I don't know. It was just like, just made sense. Like everything just kind of lined up. I absolutely love it. So, Leslie, I know we spoke a little bit about, you know, the the lesson. I, I say you either win or you learn. The lesson of what you learn in Florida, <laughs> we don't lose. And everything in life is, is you know, an opportunity to either win or learn, right? Then you, you got to see the guest avatar there. You say, you know what, that's not going to be a good fit for me. Let me get back to my cabin situation. And that's what that's what you have done. And you've built a business mate, you know, that has a lot of women, which I absolutely love. What would you say, and this is your journey, your, your mission, you're empowering, you know, looking to empower over a thousand women to become millionaires through real estate. What would you say are some of the biggest obstacles that women face right now in the real estate investing world and how can we overcome them? Yeah, actually, so as a part of the Forbes Business Council, I'm actually writing a piece for them right now on that exact topic. So I've just done a ton of research. 
I'm also speaking at a multifamily investor nation conference in Charlotte in June on the topic, particularly around women. So in my research, that's what I was trying to uncover. And so the statistic is only 31% of all investors are women, but meanwhile, 90% of all wealth is created out of real estate. And I have data to support those statistics. But the two biggest things that I uncovered, just looking within myself and also asking other women and doing research was imposter syndrome and gender bias. So with imposter syndrome, this is really like a mindset problem and it's perpetuated by the name of the damn problem. So that's like, we got to Like we're talking about it. We're going to put awareness on it and then hopefully put it to bed. But I think with women, there's some sort of deep, dark insecurity and I, it still rears its head with me from time to time. It's like, did I just get lucky? Did I just buy these cabins and just get lucky? and build this amazing career where I'm now going to be on TV about it. Like, no, like I worked my butt off. I learned all these things. And, you know, I surrounded myself with other women doing things. Not, not, not to single you out, men. I just feel like women need, need an extra hand up. But understanding what imposter syndrome is and how to combat it is, is largely based on not trying to do everything yourself and raising your hand and asking for help. The wheel doesn't need to be reinvented. There's other women doing it. You just have to plug yourself into the right networks. And then around gender bias, I think that is, that's just playing itself out, you know, in life in general. That's, it's there. But when you're not seeing, you're in a circle where maybe you live in an area where you're just not seeing women investors, or you're even hearing men or even other women sometimes saying things like, oh, well, this, I know this woman that did that and she failed. It's like that perpetuates again a problem with like, oh, well, other women have failed. I'll probably fail. Or you're, you're hearing that there hasn't been success in the way that you see for yourself. It's like carve your own. And then I think the third pillar of it, of it all is understanding those problems, putting yourself around the right people. And then like men, can help too is like lift women up around you. If you see someone that wants to be mentor or coached or, you know, give, give her a helping hand or connect her to other women that you know. I think that's, those are like the biggest things in regards to it. And like I said, I'm not perfect. I still occasionally I'm like, oh, should I do this deal? I don't know. It's like kind of scary. I'm making some pivots right now in my portfolio that's once again going to take me out of Tennessee. Not entirely. Obviously, I love Tennessee, but. I am going to sell a couple cabins and I'm going to try the Rocky Mountain because I have some people that I love very much there. So right. I just want to give it a shot, see if I can build some business there. So, you know, just believe in yourself. Oh, I love that, you know, and it, and it doesn't have to be more profound than that, right? You know, we all second guess ourselves. I don't know. I don't know if it's ever going to go away, you know, so it's how do you manage that and still move forward? So I, I absolutely love everything that you just mentioned. That's exciting. I cannot wait to see uh, what you do in the Rockies. That's going to be interesting for sure. And closer to now, question for you. Do you reside primarily in the Nashville area or still in California? Nothing to do with California. No, thank you. It's yeah, the, after there, like literally all of my family is there. I'm this black. Okay. But I have, I'm in Nashville right now. This is a condo that I own. And then I have a house. My primary home is in the Smoky Mountain. 
So I kind of like, I travel around. I'm kind of one of those people that doesn't want to be tied down. So I'll be like, oh, I'm going to go to London. Or Guatemala in January. Go bigger. Where you going? I mean, go around and do stuff. Where'd you say you went in January? I went to Guatemala. Guatemala. Oh, fun. For an investor thing. But yeah, I mean, I just, you know, if there's something sounds like it's going to be an exciting thing and a chance to build memories, then I sign up for it and I do it. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into the tea and do our show and tell, in your opinion, and I know the audience wants to know, and they're going to benefit from this for sure, but in your opinion, what would you say are some of the most important underwriting metrics that will move the needle in terms of win or loss? So what, as far as successful short-term rental investing, what would you say are some of the most important underwriting metrics? Yeah. Net operating income and cash on cash. Those are the really the only two things that I look at today. So net operating income. I have a on my YouTube channel, I have an hour-long class that I just I just taught it a few nights ago, where I actually build a pro forma, the fancy term for if the deal's gonna make money or not from scratch. So you can do it too. I didn't want to use like an existing template because it's always intimidating. You wonder what formulas people have in there. So I just like did it all from scratch on a deal that uh, my best friend has under contract today in Smokies. So there are deals cash flowing where you can get full service property manager and still make money. So, but what I do is I'm just like getting the deal itself. So important metrics are going to be your taxes and insurance. Uh, You're going to need to figure out what you think the rent is you can make on it. And, you know, if you work with someone like me, I own a property management company. We have a portfolio, so we know what the reality is, but we also have insight into um, a company called Key Data. They support the property management industry. And so we partner with them. Their data is going back pretty dang far. If you use AirDNA, I just met the company CEO, and she said that their data actually goes back to 2015. So it depends what tool within AirDNA you're using, right? But you're not just getting like pandemic travel data, which is like a big mistake. A lot of people are selling now because they're in the red because they used the wrong data when they bought. But so, yeah, rent minus, you know, taxes and insurance. You're going to want to look at what's the Wi-Fi cost because that's huge for travelers. What's the water bill? Is it on its own well? Is Does it even, even have a bill? HOA fees? Um, electricity, you know, all the like monthly true operating costs of which this is interesting. You can Google this, but in the banking world, you do not want to include principal or interest. And the reason is so that you can stack up different, you know, you can be looking at different markets. You can be looking at different deals and comparing all the metrics apples to apples. It also is like, if you have the ability to buy something cash, um, versus put less down or more down, that way you can play with that metric after. So your net operating income is truly your rent minus your monthly operating expenses. So anything to do with the property taxes and insurance. Then after you get that net figure, then you subtract out your mortgage principal and interest to get that true like actual, I call it actual cash flow. And then you use that metric. So that's your NOI, your your true actual NOI at the end of the day, what you're going to make. And then you can figure out cash on cash, which is a metric that we largely use to figure out how profitable the deal will be. And I'll tell you why. If you 
are underwriting a deal and it's under 5%, like you can just go buy T-bills. You can invest in T-bills, which is government guaranteed. And that's at 5% today. So if you're looking at something that's under 5%, that's a no-go. Um, I try to get 20% on most things. So it's like the, and the percentages for every dollar you put into the deal in year one. So that would be your closing costs, your down payment, and any rehab, furniture, repair, actual dollars and cents out of your physical pocket, not your mortgage, just your down and those other metrics. And you're dividing that NOI number by that cash number. And you're coming up with a percentage. So on my underwriting class, which is on YouTube, the deal is a real life scenario. It's going to be closing May 17th, I think. And her figures are like, her net operating income is like 22,000, I believe. I'm trying to go on memory now. And her cash on cash, cash percentage is a little bit low because she's actually putting 25% down. So she could have even did like 10% down and the number could be a lot higher. But so for every dollar that she's putting into this cabin to purchase it, she's going to make, I believe it's like nine just over 9%. So it's still a solid deal. And we are, we're not overly conservative because you, if you're overly conservative, you're going to work yourself out of the deal. You're never going to buy anything. But you want to be realistic, I guess is the word, with the expenses and with the rent. If you're off by the rent by like 25 grand, like that could make it so that you lose money. Well, in today's market with, you know, interest rates and prices the way they are, it's tighter. Yeah. And, and you just spoke about the elephant in the room, right? It's interest rates and, and navigating that. So definitely doing the work to underwrite is, is also very important. So with that in mind, are you looking at, and I know this is more in the commercial world, and I actually look at this in terms of comparing markets from one market to the other, but what, what are your thoughts on looking at cap rates for short-term rentals? I don't look at a cap rate, but it's just an easy, I could, it's like what other formula you need. Very, very simple. Yeah. But and I just family. look at it because like you said, in terms of the, the mortgage, right? It, it's going to be very different in terms of what you put down versus what you don't put down. So cash on cash is definitely the way that I identify, you know, how quickly I can get my investment back, uh, the actual amount of money that I'm putting in. But if I'm going from market to market, glancing at cap rates gives me a little bit of insight on, you know, which direction I want to play in. But you're going to say something. Go ahead, Liz. Oh, I don't even remember. I'm just like, no, I don't do a cap rate. I would do that if I was still in banking and I was looking at, you know, strip mall for a client. Bad example, banks still like strip malls or something of that nature. But because it's single family, it's kind of overkill. And I think a lot of the new investors that come to me that download someone's pro forma and it'll have all of those metrics embedded in it, it becomes very overwhelming. Very similar to when you go to Vegas and you go to the craps table and you're like, I'm out. Like, I don't, there's too many bets going. Like, I don't even, I'm going to just walk away. So there's really only like two things we look at. You don't need to do all the bets on the table. Like, just do the ones that you know. <laughs> So that's kind of, you know, why we don't look at it. But to your point, I mean, if you're a savvy investor and you're doing market comparisons and all these fancy things, like definitely you can throw that into the mix. It wouldn't be difficult. It's just another. Yeah. The, the, and it's, it's just a couple of numbers. And the reason I like it, like you had mentioned, we sometimes underestimate the operating income, right? And the expense ratios 
compared, you know, so if in Florida by the beach, we're going to have higher insurance, you mm-hmm. know, that we were paying for. So our net operating income is, is significantly impacted and mm-hmm. just wanting to not underestimate the amount that we're going to be paying every month uh, and get a better picture of, you know, what the revenue will look like is one of the reasons we look at it. Yeah. But yeah, mm-hmm. so, oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's all I'm saying. What are your expectations in today's investing environment on a realistic return on investment compared to a year ago? What a great question. Yeah. I mean, in relation to the numbers, so cash on cash in particular, just to give you an idea, my very early deals were at like 60% cash on cash. And my deals today, I think I bought one in December and I bought one in September, October. And those were at about 23 to 25%. So if I was looking to buy something now, it would probably be around 25%. We did see a little bit of a market softening in the Smokies. And, you know, like the one I bought in September, October, it actually appraised 30 under where I was going to be buying it. And I was able to negotiate uh, the agent. I was able to negotiate a price drop, which was awesome. But we're even seeing like some comps, like if I was going to list one of mine that I bought in December, it's suggesting to list it like 75 below what I paid. Now I'm a buy and hold investor. I have no intention of selling it. That cabin is like primarily where I'm filming this weekend. So it got me on TV. So I'm going to keep it forever. I'm going to die there. But no, in all seriousness, I would say if you're going to self-manage, you could almost put on a blindfold, throw a dart and find something that will work but it's probably going to be like that 20% number. If you're getting professional property management, that could be anywhere from like, I have a buyer that's going to be at 9%. And then I have another buyer that's around 11, 12%. Those are just like the two case studies I've been using lately. And it's falling somewhere in those metrics. So yeah, I mean, it's still a good time to invest even at today's rates um, and current purchase prices. So, Leslie, why are you comfortable with quoting cash on cash when there are multiple different scenarios with which acquisitions can take place? What if I'm doing a cash purchase, a 10% down, a 15% down? What are some assumptions um, that I should assume, I guess, assumptions that I should assume is great, that you're taking into consideration for that cash on cash? Is everyone like at a 15% down for you or 20% down? like in that particular calculation. That's a good point. You're right. It isn't apples to apples for everybody. So my deals are always 20% down. And my buyer that's at 9%, she's doing 25% down. Now she's blown out her budget and it's the margins are tighter. And then the other one, I believe they're doing 10 or 15. So you're right. It is slightly not apples to apples. And that's why it's like the biggest thing that I want to get out into the world is like, do not have your agent do your underwriting for you. Do it yourself because your eyes are going to be better, but get educated on how to do it. That's why on my YouTube, I went through a whole underwriting scenario of how to do it yourself, how to build your own spreadsheet from scratch so that you're not relying on somebody's numbers or looking at metrics that might not be applicable to like your investing goals. Yeah. No, thank you for that. So with that being said, I know the interest rates are a little bit higher. I know that the expectations for getting the prime um, loan products are not there 100%. Are you seeing a lot of investors coming in with 
20 plus percent down. I know you mentioned one that was less, but what would you see that down payment mix look like for the most part? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on their strategy and what sort of mortgage they're comfortable with. Like I said, I'm usually at 20%. I My conventional lending days are over. So I'm doing debt service coverage ratio, DSCR. These are largely asset-based loans where they're particularly looking at the asset and how much rent it can actually make versus how much you're spending. Then they calculate a little ratio. They also look at your FICO score. So that's the kind of loans I do. I'm capped out on conventional products. So those rates are like, High, high sevens at a very best case scenario, up to 10. And then conventional, I mean, a lot of my buyers, I do push them that way if they can qualify conventionally. It is the smarter route. You do have the flexibility to put lower amount of money down. You're going to have mortgage insurance if you're under 20%. And, you know, there's still going to be rates and fees on any of these products. And those are going to vary vastly based on if you're going to buy down the rates or you know, what, what your lender's offering you. You have to keep in mind they do make money on margins. So shop around. Don't just go back to the same lender all the time. I have a big list of them that I share with buyers. But yeah, I mean, you can get into a deal as low as 10% down if your credit supports it. And that rate is probably going to be right now like in the sixes, I think, maybe sevens. It just depends on it's swaying so much. I like, I'd hate to quote it. It's in the same category as like doing someone's underwriting. It's like, as soon as I quote it, you're going to find a hole in it. It's not my core competency anymore since I left banking. And I never did primary mortgages or second home mortgages anyway. But I have some quality folks that I'll refer buyers to and they can go, you know, meet with that person or do it on the phone or Zoom or whatever and really truly understand what that product looks like and then compare that, you know, to other lenders that you might shop chop their rates. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I just got off of our mastermind call and one of our members was quoted over 9% last week, but this week that same lender quoted a little bit over 8%. I was like, okay, we're heading in the right direction. <laughs> well, let's yeah. see what next week holds, you know, not that, you know, that is a thing, but I felt like we were trending in the right direction <laughs> for a moment there. Uh, and yeah, and it's kind of crazy. So the Fed just raised the, their base is 25 another raise so what it's like we're like seeing like unprecedented raises of rates but in some cases you'll still see your lender drop the rate because they may have already had the raise built in and now they're trying to get more clients so it's like this game of anybody's best guess and then on some products they don't recommend locking the rate and that might surprise you into a higher rate right at the closing table, which has happened to me more than once. So, you know, it's like educate yourself on it. Again, back to earlier conversation, don't overdwell in it. You know, look at look at your, your more importantly than cash on cash, look at your net operating income. And if you have the ability to have a rate swing, then cool. If you don't have a prepayment penalty on your loan, you could know in the back of your mind that potentially, don't bank on this, but potentially you could refi that loan in just a few years or less um, to embed additional cash flow by having a lower interest rate. Maybe you could win the lottery and buy a Ferrari and also pay off all your, I don't, I just, it's like we're guessing. <laughs> so indeed, put your best foot forward and get the deal done. No, you're absolutely right. Well, Leslie, I so appreciate you joining us this evening. 
I know that you have an amazing business where you help out-of-state investors invest in real estate in various markets to create passive income. And I know that you're doing that with the, you know, it's powered by your property management business as well. Can you please tell the people where to find you, your YouTube channel name as well? Because I know a lot of people are going to want to look at that underwriting training. I'm going to be heading there in a little bit myself. So go ahead and let us know where to find you. And I'll include all the links in our show notes as well. Yeah, um, I would say the best place is Instagram. I have a link tree that goes to YouTube, Forbes, my personal website, all the podcasts, like everything I'm involved in is on there. It'll say where I'm speaking next. Um, and so the Instagram is at Leslie.Ann with an E dot Morris. And then if you want to just go straight to my personal website where Rachel launched everything from, that's LeslieAnnMorris.com. So those two are the best and you can get out to all the other things. But I am everywhere. I post on every. I even have a Twitter, but it's like, I don't really like Twitter. Yeah, I, I don't know if I've figured Twitter out either. I, I was trying, guys. I promise you I was trying. Well, Leslie, massive thank you to you guys. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. As usual, I hope you found some insights from our discussion. I think we're, you've given us a fresh look at the Smokies, Leslie. So massive thank you uh, to you for that. And so guys, creativity and perseverance, I believe is really what has catapulted your business. And I thank you for doing what you do, especially for the women in, in this, this arena. So thank you. Thank you, Leslie. And bye-bye guys. I will see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you.